Romans chapter 8 is where we are, and uh, for me today, study in Romans, it feels sort of like the final, final leg of a journey up, up the mountain. Now, some of our brothers aren't here with us today because they're out running a marathon, not something I do. Uh, climbing a mountain isn't something I do, but uh, I know the Murphys have done that as well as run marathons. I think Ben's done that. Some of you have climbed mountains, so you know the exhilaration of getting up that final leg of the, of the journey to the mountaintop to experience the most exhilarating vista that you've ever seen. And I, again, I feel that way today as we get to the end of Romans When we get to Romans 9, the letter will shift to a focus on the Jewish people, but the essential presentation of the gospel culminates in our passage for this morning. So we can remember all the fabulous things that we've seen along the journey. There was the groundwork for the gospel that was found in chapters 1 and 2. There was the uh, notes sounded in chapters 3 and 4 and 5, the notes of justification by faith alone, of redemption, of propitiation, of imputation. And then in chapter 6, we looked at the implications for the Christian life found in all of those concepts. Chapter 8 has reiterated these same things, but then gone on to instruct us about the work of the Holy Spirit, about our adoption, about our hope for personal and for cosmic redemption. Last time, we gloried in the grand promise and the glorious five points of the Ordo Salutis. And now, this. I'm going to read from the New American Standard, as is my custom, but I want to note that in the New Living Translation, verse 31 in Romans reads thusly, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? And uh, my response is, well, exactly. Words cannot do justice to the gospel, but the church has been trying for 2,000 years, and we have, thankfully, all eternity to sing the praises of our Savior, and that will not be too long. Now, the full text for today, and uh, unusual for us, but I'm going to ask that you stand for this reading of the last nine verses of Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him Freely give us all things. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, 
which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight as we seek to comprehend together the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. Amen. Please be seated. <laughs> Today, uh, today's letter is the letter C. And we are going to see that God is making us into confident, connected conquerors. Cool. We begin by looking at our confidence. That word is not here in our passage. Verse 38 speaks of us being convinced. So that's close. We are convinced. We are confident. We're anything but concerned and confused. But really, the concept of confidence permeates this passage. It tells us of why and how we can be confident in our salvation present and our salvation future. And the confidence, of course, is in whom? It's not in yourself. It is in Christ Jesus. He, presented, he is presented here in three roles which fortify the believer's confidence. In the order of my preference, <laughs> we're going to see Jesus here, first of all, as intercessor. That's verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So this is a new role for Christ. Romans has yet to mention this. It has told us that Jesus has lived for us, that he died for us, that he's risen for us, that he's justified for us, or justified us. Now, now to this. He intercedes for us. And to intercede means to come between two parties, usually in the way of representation for one of the two parties. If I want to, uh, to borrow Scott Shriver's truck, I may go to Kate and ask her if she would appeal to her husband on my behalf. And in so doing, she would be my intercessor. You understand? It is specifically noted that Jesus does this from his position at the right hand of God the Father Almighty that we've spoken of in the creed already today. So you may have learned that God Almighty, you may have heard this, you may, you've heard that God does everything left-handed. You've heard that? You know why? Because Jesus is sitting on his right hand. So, <laughs> all right. <laughs> ha! <laughs> This simply means that Jesus is in the place of power, along with his Father. He is reigning in that place, and he is also interceding for the saints, which I understand to be his work of speaking to the Father on our behalf. The New Testament speaks of this work of Jesus in several places. Sometimes it uses a different term than what we have here as intercessor. It may use the term mediator or advocate instead of intercessor, but the ideas conveying the same thing. Second, 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 1 John 2, 1. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Hebrews 7, 25. He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In his, in his earthly ministry, we read about Jesus praying for his disciples, and we understand that he continues so to do. 
So there's much comfort in that. And I want you to see that if Jesus intercedes for us, do we have need for any other mediator? No. No, no other need. No need for the mother of Jesus to intercede. No need for the saints to intercede. Jesus is the appointed and the perfect mediator who always lives, it says, to make intercession on our behalf. Therefore, knowing this, you and I can boldly approach the throne of grace. We can live in and we can pray with confidence. That's our first C word. So we may be confident because Christ is our <coughs> defender. Uh, that's our second point. He's our intercessor. Secondly, we're confident because he's our defender. We just read four, uh, four who questions in our, in our passage. Look back there, verse 31. I think we had that. If God is for us, there's a who. Who is against us? Uh, you know, the scriptures tell us we, we do have opponents, don't we? Someone is against us. Then 2 in verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? So Paul suggests that there may be someone who undertakes to charge you with some offense or condemn you for your sin. Right? We are vulnerable in these ways. There is a vital and hostile opposition. Thank God we have a mighty defender in Jesus. So think, think with me about this. Verse 31 again, if God is for us, who is against us? Well, what does Scripture say in answer to that question? That there could be any number of humans against you. More importantly, we know that there is a devil a Satan who is against you? The answer, though, to this rhetorical question, who is against you, is, ready for this? No one of consequence. I mean, compared to God, who is against you? The answer is, say it with me, no one of consequence. You may not know this, but that's a line from The Princess Bride. Check it out. But it does fit here. The apostle wants you to view your adversary with eyes of faith. He wants you to remember that God is for you. You may have already figured this out from what else is said in the book of Romans. He loves you. He calls you. He predestines you. He justifies you. Is God for you? I said, is he for you? Yes. <laughs> you can know a great deal about a person by considering who their friends are and who their enemies might be. The Christian has a friend in Jesus and an enemy in Satan. That's the right arrangement, okay? Now, he wants you to see your defender who is Jesus standing next to or opposite your opponent so that you will walk in confidence. Even though your adversary may be strong, your defender may be far, uh, your defender is far, far greater than your adversary. I can't help but think of a mighty fortress is our God, Martin Luther's great hymn, where he works through this whole scenario of us facing a powerful devil, but we face him with the help of the mighty Lord on our behalf. And it says, one little word from Jesus will fell him. 
So when we remember Jesus in the moments of stress and temptation, then we're going to walk in confidence and we're going to walk in peace. This is why the strategy of our adversary is to get us distracted so we forget that our Lord, our friend, is on the universe's throne. He knows that when we remember Christ, he is sunk. There's no comparison between the power of Satan and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 118, verse 6, The Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Psalm 56, 11. In, is that it? In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What's the question? What can man do to me? Now, I would not have you think the answer to that is nothing. It, 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 no. Man can hurt you. The Bible does not pretend on this point. Lots of God's favorite people got beat up and some got killed. Read the book. Jesus was especially clear on this, Matthew 10, 28. He said, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Well, that's a huh. Jesus indicates they can, if God permits, kill you. <laughs> that strikes us as quite severe, but it happens still fairly often for brothers and sisters in places like Nigeria and other parts of the planet, so we have to factor in, we always have to factor in eternity. We have to remember, too, that no one can touch us without God's permission. Romans 8, 28 still applies, and how it does, we will all understand when we see the Lord. For now, we are encouraged to trust in the one who is our defender. Defenders, you know, they come in different forms. Some may carry guns, some may carry briefcases, and in the latter case, what is in the briefcase of a defender? It is a brief, which is a written argument submitted to a court of law. Our passage takes us back to the courtroom where the book of Romans has us spending a lot of time, actually. And in verse 33, it says this, Who will bring a charge against God's elect? <laughs> Who will bring a charge? Curiously, the day I was working on this sermon was the day the Manhattan DA sent down 34 charges against, against President Trump. So I'm like, oh, that's an interesting question for today. Will the judge throw out those charges? I don't know. But when Satan or anyone brings a charge against a believer in Jesus, the judge of all the earth chucks it in the fire. Why? Because the judge knows Romans 8.1 that there can be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I just thought of a term. I have no idea if this applies. Illustration on the fly. We have unqualified immunity. I, a, maybe that doesn't work. I'll have to figure that one out. But we are exempt from condemnation because of Christ's payment on our behalf. God knows, the judge knows that God is justified, has supplied an abundant righteousness into the account of every single person who knows the Lord. So listen, are there those who are trying to charge us and condemn us? Oh yeah. Don't confuse the conviction of the Holy Spirit, which leads to repentance and life and joy with the condemnations of the enemy, which lead to despair. The Spirit's convictions always come with hope. But again, the main idea here is that the condemners, 
do not compare with the justifier. And no matter what the lower court may say, the Supreme Court will pronounce your pardon and your freedom. This is why when we grasp the gospel, we can be confident. Amen? Amen. All right, stay with me. There's still one more thing to see about the ground of our confidence in Jesus. He's our intercessor. He's our defender. He is also our deliverer. And here we get into verse 32, our memory verse for the month. Do we have that? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Just like in verse 28, it says we get all good things. All good things are ours. And the argument is rooted in the deliverance won for us by Jesus, which deliverance he won because he himself was delivered over in a negative way to those who killed him for our sake. Okay, there's a lot to see here. See that God the Father is the one described here as delivering Jesus to death so that we could be saved. So you ask the question, who is responsible for the Lord's death? For God so loved the world that, what's the next word? He. He gave His only begotten Son. He delivered Him over. Octavius Winslow summed it up when he asked, who, was, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. And then working from that understanding, Paul presents this exquisite argument from the greater to the lesser. He says, look, God gave us his son. He gave us the most precious thing of all. So it is folly to think he will not give us every good and perfect gift in him. The greater to the lesser. Are you following the argument that he's bringing here? I mean, suppose you have a friend who loans you his brand new Mercedes convertible because your car is in the shop for a few days. Later that month, you're looking for a rake and you don't find yours. Are you reluctant to go ask your neighbor to borrow a rake? The answer, of course, is no. If the man lets you use his Mercedes Benz, he'll let you use his rake. He gave you the greater, how much more the lesser. And the point is, Jesus is greater than everything else put together. So if the Father sacrifices him for our sake, what will he possibly withhold from you? Nothing that would be for your good. Nothing. Similar to the promise from last time and mentioned numerous times in Scripture. Let's look at some other passages. Psalm 84, 11. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Ephesians 1, 3 says we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 21. Read the first five words with me. All things belong to you. And then he says, whether Paul or Apollos, Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you and you belong to Christ. Brother, sister, is there any ground of confidence here in that promise 
in that truth. Oh my goodness. We live in this incredible space where the Father works all things for our good, where we are so loved by the Creator that this promise that He makes is sealed in the precious blood of Jesus Christ. I mean, what more can He say than to you He has said? And all that is just point one for today. We are confident, not doubtful, not discouraged, confident. And now secondly, we see that in Christ... We are conquerors. Conquerors. Actually, the wording of our text is to the effect that we are super conquerors. That's even better. Now, you know the word Nike, right? Uh, the famous shoe brand. It's a Greek word. It means conqueror. Uh, and the term used here is joined with the prefix in the Greek, huper, hyper. We are hyper or super conquerors in Christ. We don't just conquer. We overwhelmingly conquer. With Jesus on our team, we don't just win the game by a point. We destroy the opposition. Look at the text again, verses 36 and 37. For your sake, we're being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we, what's it say? Overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Don't move on without recognizing that Paul is saying this stuff about being super conquerors to people who were getting slammed by the world, by the Roman government even. Paul knew better than anyone, so the conquering he refers to has to be understood in that context, and notice how verse 37 begins, in all these things, in the suffering, in the hostility, in the struggle. You don't escape them, but you endure them. Our conquest does not keep us from the difficulties. No, no. Life is full of trouble for all, and the Christian sometimes gets an extra share because we are very often despised by the world. Listen, we are witnessing the world around us, the broader culture becoming increasingly hostile to believers who hold to biblical values. Church attendance is somewhat down. Public opinion not been going our way. The devil wants you to run away and give yourself to the dark side. Another movie quote. He wants you to abandon yourself, abandon the difficult ways of the disciple. But God is saying, even in these things, you Brother, you, sister, you can conquer. And that means in part, you can walk in peace and in joy. You have enemies who rejoice to hurt you. But you out rejoice them because of the gospel. Revelation 12. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come down, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night, and they. They overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. So we are overcomers. We are conquerors, humble servants who obey even unto death, trusting in the promise of Christ. So we are confident conquerors, and we are such because we are, third point for today, because we are 
connected. Joined to Christ, merged with him. We are one, we are married, we are unified. Pick your word, but read the truth here. Let it sink in from our text, verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? And the answer to the question is no, none of those things. We're not going to parse it all out, but he lists various angles on the terrible things that can and sometimes do come our way. These are things that lead a lot of people to feel like they're not loved. They make you question the love of Christ. That is what the devil wants for you. The apostle fortifies us against his lies, and he finishes this chapter with a similar poetic flourish. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why, I think that covers everything, don't you? He mentions the future. I mean, suppose history continues to go the way we've seen it in the last couple of decades. Suppose you take a 100-year nap and you wake up to a brave new dystopian reality. What will be, what will be the same 100 years from now, no, no matter what? Huh? The love of God in Christ. It's going Nothing's going to change that, and, and it's the most important thing of all. That's the biggest reality. Things to come won't shake you. They won't shake you loose of his hold. May I remind you of John 10, verse 27? My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me, and I give eternal life to them. For how long? How long do you get eternal life for? Eternal. And they will never perish. And here we go. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Same promise different wording. It speaks to our fears. It speaks to and it rebukes the lies of our enemy. Even from the garden, what was the devil's lie? God really is not for you. He's really not looking out for you. You're not loved. That is still his message. But the gospel says that God is for you. He is your friend. And it is good to have powerful friends, especially the most powerful friend. One of our hymns says, ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriend thee. He will drive away the snatchers and the lion who seeks to devour, and he will keep you connected to your Savior. So what can separate you from God's love? Most anything else maybe you can lose. Think of the precious things that are not totally secure for you, the precious persons that are not secure. Basically, everything else in your life is fragile, isn't it? I've told the story of the morning after I 
resigned as pastor of our church in Florida, 2006. All my adult life, basically, I had been Pastor Dan of Covenant Presbyterian Church of Palm Bay. And one Monday morning, I woke up, and I was not that. (laughs) And our gracious Lord provided me a song. And this sermon gets kind of crazy at this point, so endure with me. But uh, our, our Lord gave me a song that morning that came on our Christian radio station. It wasn't on my iPod. I don't know that I had an iPod. But it came on the radio station, and it spoke perfectly to my need. It was a song by Stephen Curtis Chapman. It says this. Know that even a faithful spouse can be lost to us. But not Jesus. Not our Savior. No, no, no. Nothing can separate us from His love. Long, high, broad, deep, permanent. There in this life, there in the next. So here's what we must do. We must build our lives on this rock. Another song I've come to love says this. (laughs) Christian psychology, brothers and sisters. This is where we find mental health, emotional health, in a crazy world. What is at the center of your emotional universe? It must be the love of Christ because it is the only thing we are guaranteed and it is the primary thing we need. It is greater and more enduring than your sins, greater and more enduring than your problems, greater and more enduring than your griefs, than your fears. Verse 32 of Romans 8, verse 35 of Romans 8, verse 39 of Romans 8 all tell you that when you get nervous about your future, which I'm known to do, do you look at the cross? You look at the cross where the Son of God was delivered over for you to pay for your sin, but also to testify more dramatically than anything else that you are loved by the God who is greater than all. Connected to Christ, you can be confident conquerors. (laughs) One last thing. The final modifying phrase in our text must not be ignored. The amazing love of Jesus which we are extolling, who gets it? Please don't say everyone. There is a type of love that everyone gets. But this love, this saving love, this distinct gift to the called ones is for those who are joined by faith in Christ, the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is only found there. And if you would know real security, if you would know unfailing love, you must get yourself into Jesus, connected to him. Look to him for pardon. Look to him for power, for love, for security. And then these astonishing promises we've been talking about for two weeks, then they will be yours. And with them, you will become a confident, connected conqueror. And I close with a quote from a great hymn (laughs) that says in the last verse, the soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake. I'll never, no, never, one more time, no, never forsake. World, or any other world, can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. Our musicians would come on up. They're going to lead us in yet another hymn that I haven't quoted, but is even more thoroughly rooted in this particular passage. And as they come up, let's respond to God in prayer. 
Lord, what more can we say than to you? You have said, we have said, uh, you've said so much to us, it blows our minds, and we would seek to say thank you, but not just with our words, but with our lives. Father, forgive us that we often question and doubt your love. That's, that's a terrible response to your gospel. Our fear is a violation of your promise. Forgive us, O oh God. Our timidity violates your promise, tramples upon it. Lord, our yielding to temptation certainly does so. Forgive us for all of these failures of faith. Increase and encourage our hearts today. Lord, we've meditated on your word. We've listened to your promise today as we have last week and in the weeks prior. And we just simply ask, Lord, that your spirit would make the things we've read abundantly real in our hearts that we would comprehend together this breadth, this length, this height, this depth of your love for us, that that would become and always be the central, greatest, most significant reality in our lives. And as we come to your table now, use what we do here to seal our devotion and commitment to these truths. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.